this bright light is for me because COVID didn't just take my fingers, but it took my left eye. So I had uh, some surgery done and it's a little bit harder to read. So bear with me if I stumble anywhere along the way of reading today. Uh, Let me start out by telling everyone here how much I have deeply, deeply appreciated your prayers during uh, the time that I went through with the COVID and uh, how what a help that was, not just to me, but to my wife who had to bear, really, I slept through a portion of it, so uh, not a whole lot I could do, but she had to go through every little bit of it and help me in every way. So your prayers are, um, we're deeply grateful for those. Now, back in uh, Lambertville, Michigan, this tiny little town of about 8,000, 9,000 people where I live and pastor, uh, our church has a, as a preschool, three and four-year-olds, been there for about 45 years, and um, we've got about 70 kids there, and at times, just for a kick, I like to go over and watch the kids come in and just listen to the kids talking because they're so cotton-picking and hilarious. But I also see the parents, and the younger parents have a tendency, at least some of them, to kind of be leading uh, the kids to the door while they stare at their cell phones and drop them off. But the grandparents are always uh, letting, dropping off their pride and joy. Um, and they have dreams that that little three and four year old is going to become somebody special and somebody great. And of course, all of us do that. I have two sons, they're old men now. I'm proud of both of them. They're both uh, good father, or good uh, husbands, great husbands. I don't have any grandkids. They're great husbands and great men. So we want our kids to turn out well. Um, Maybe great if that's the case. But I can tell you that early childhood development is not an absolute indicator of any kind um, that grandma's little genius is going to be successful and graduate with honors. Uh, Little Jimmy, uh, who couldn't talk until he was three, he may turn out to be much greater than ever expected. I don't know if you know this, but Einstein was like eight years old before he could learn how to tie his shoes. So sometimes the small things and little things aren't an indicator of who someone might be or when they might blossom. The great kid in college playing college football was drafted into the NFL and goes bad, and the kid that got drafted 37th turns out to be the great performer. So we never know what's going on. So the my kid is an honor student or my kid is a genius bumper sticker may in fact... Now, the sticker may, in fact, hold up better over time than the honor student did. And yet it's our nature to seek out and find the best and brightest among us. And we want that for our own kids. I mean, what I'm looking around the room here, and there's so many children here, and it's so great to see. And what parent here doesn't want what's best for their kids? We may not understand what that means yet, especially child to child. I look back here, we're talking to William back here. He is an outgoing guy. And uh, if you want to know what's on his mind, just ask him. In fact, don't even ask him. He'll just tell you. Uh, you don't have to waste the time of the middleman of asking questions. Just stop, sit down, and open your ears. Um, but we want those who are going to succeed us to do better than we did. We want them to not just succeed us. We want them to exceed us. Uh, those... Uh, certainly whom every teacher wants to claim as their own. I've got kids, one of them called me yesterday, talked to me for two hours, a former Marine, just retired. She kind of hung 
with, she adopted my wife and I when she was uh, about 13 years old and just hung with us all the time. And she still to this day now, I think she's about 30, uh, calls me, texts me. Sometimes I kind of wish she would leave me alone for a while, but for the most part, they're good conversations. But we want the kids, we want the adults, we want the people we've invested in uh, the most to do well, just the way we are. And this is what I believe is going on in the end of Luke 2. I know your bulletin says Luke 3, but I've I've, uh, chosen uh, to go in a different direction this morning. So excuse that error. I probably should have gotten a hold of of Caleb earlier to let him know. But uh, we're going to go to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verses 40 through 52. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit. By the way, I'm reading from the King James. Because 50 years ago when I was saved, the ESVs and the other, all these other translations didn't exist. You either had the Living Bible or the NIV or the King James. And so I weaned on the King James, and that's where my heart is. But I'll make it clear as we work through. That's my job. Your job is to listen. So, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had filled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that three days, that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto his son, Why why have you thus dealt with us? Behold, your father and I have sought you sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spoke unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them, But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. So if if you were carrying this through from chapter 2 to to where we are right now, we would jump from the birth narrative of Jesus, which actually runs from his birth all the way till the time that he was somewhere between one and two years old. But now we have actually uh, leaped ahead, warp speed, to the preteen narrative of Jesus. And one verse actually supplies uh, 12 years of missing time, and that's verse 40. The child grew and went strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I am often awed by how much God doesn't tell us, how much is missing in the narrative, because God chooses what we need to know. And quite frankly, if he put everything into one book that was ever said or done, Uh, we would never be able to take it anywhere with us. Uh, It would be impossible. And we would get lost trying to read it. So he was kind enough to narrow that down to the things that were most important. And from his birth until 12, that is it. That's all we need to know. So uh, from verses uh, 41 through uh, 52, what we're going to find is what is called a paracope. Now, a pericope, in short, and in our case here, of course, uh, a a pericope is a section of Scripture that can stand alone. It's an independent section of Scripture. 
In other words, everything we read has to have a context before it and after it. But what we're reading here could be inserted here or not inserted here. This whole section could be taken out and you would pick up where you left off in verse 40, pick up again in chapter 3. But God said, no, this is very important to insert in here. And that's exactly what he did. This is his word. He puts it where he wants to for his reasons. But this is a standalone section. uh, So it doesn't require that pre or post context. The Lord, by inspiration, simply chose to put it here. Now, the story takes place in Jesus' 12th year on his uh, trip with his family to Jerusalem. Um, That's been taken, evidently, according to the text, every year since his birth. It is the great feast of the Passover, celebrated for seven days. And the normal population of the city of Jerusalem, which is about 30,000, would swell during those times to up to 200,000. So the Passover was one of three feasts that by the time of Christ was mandatory to attend by all Jews. You could choose one. You didn't have to come to all three. But one of the three, every year, you needed to attend unless there was sickness or illness or something going on that precluded that. And at the end of every feast, caravans would form, uh, not just for company back to where they came from, but also for safety to your destination because there were robbers in the land and traveling together with friends and family was a, a good way to get away from that. So that's where they were at, in the caravan full of friends and family, with the kids often moving freely between those families. Uh, Jesus was thought, in fact, to be among those kids for a full day, but he was not. When we're looking for him, even in my day and time, I would often get up in the morning in the summer when school was out before my parents rose and head out the door. My buddies were outside the window. We were gone all day. The rule was, if you want to eat, show up for dinner. If you don't, we'll see you before the street lights come on. And if it wasn't, you would hear mothers all through the neighborhood standing outside yelling the name of their kid to tell you to come home. So he was out running, they thought, with all the other kids, but he was not. He had stayed behind in the temple, causing Mary and Joseph no uh, least bit of anxiety. They were very stressed over it. In fact, it says they were in pain and grieving over it, not only as a parent uh, would over losing their child, but let's be reminded of who it is they lost. I mean, they just lost Messiah. That's a pretty big loss. So it's a little bit more than what we would have had to answer for. And they couldn't understand for the life of them why he had done this. Why wasn't he there? And they began their search. And on the third day, they'd made it all the way back to Jerusalem. And they found him in the temple, not um, a sightseeing, not because his seven days wasn't over for him, But they found him sitting in the midst of the doctors. Both, it says, listening to them and also questioning them, which was, by the way, the prominent method for education of the day. In fact, I found this to be the best way to communicate still. Uh, When I go out, I used to evangelize when I was very young by someone saying, pardon me, sir, do you know what time it is? And I'd say, now is the time, today is the day, and then ran off into uh, an evangelistic crusade there on the spot. But I've learned to ask people questions, like just why do you think that? Why do you believe that? And let them discover that they really probably don't know why. And then ask them, would you like to know why I think differently from that? So you get this question-answer thing going. And this was especially true when it came to a biblical education. 
these doctors that Jesus was sitting with were the preeminent teachers of the time. They were the top of the theological pecking order in Israel. These were the rabbis, and rabbis were, by definition, instructors of students or schools. And during the Passover, all the rabbis from across the land would choose their best students, their protégés, to bring personally, separate from all their other students, to Jerusalem, not only to teach them about what was going on and what was important for those seven days, but also for the privilege of hopefully getting an audience for the, pres- uh, for the presenting of their best and their brightest students to the best and brightest teachers in Jerusalem, to the chief rabbis, the doctors, at the close of the feast. This was an after-hours thing. It was set up in advance. You put a request in to one of the doctors, or to actually not to them personally, but to their servants that took care of them, and you made a plea to be able to come, and you were, you were there by invitation. All of my biblical literature and culture and religion tells me that that's what is going on at this time. He didn't just show up. The doctors came out, and they had a private conversation. He's not by himself. He's not, not out in the courtyard. He's in one of three great chambers where there was privacy, where these students could meet so outsiders couldn't wander up and listen in. Um, he was with all these other students except for one thing. There was no apparent rabbi with him. And yet, he had captured everyone's attention. In fact, they were stunned at his understanding and his questions or his answers, literally, uh, at how distinct and nuanced he was in understanding everything that was going on and the questions, the depths of the questions he was asking, way beyond his years and with no distinct and present teacher. They said, who's your rabbi? There was nobody there with him. But I can assure you that he was not alone, and nor was he self-taught. We know verse uh, 49, and he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I was about my father's business? Uh, In verse 49, he was not there alone. He was about his father's business. When Mary and Joseph asked him why he did this, King, King James says he's about his father's business. I think the ESV, if you're using that, he says, I was in my father's house. So exactly what is going on here? Well, Jesus is not being disobedient, nor is he talking down to his parents. We need to note a couple of things at this point. So let's go to Philippians, if you would. Um, Chapter 2. We'll read verses 5 through 7. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, the ESV renders that certain portion of it. He made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself and made himself known as he emptied himself. And therefore, we need to ask, what did he empty himself of? Of what? Well, being both fully human and fully God, Jesus had chosen, if I might use the term, an eternity past, since it's a timeless environment. But before this event, before his incarnation, uh, the Godhead had chosen to deny access to some of his divine prerogatives. Jesus had laid 
some of those divine prerogatives of society. He didn't come fully loaded theologically as, uh, as God himself. He came as a man, but yet divine. He was not in his humanity omniscient, all-knowing. When he was asked, when are you returning? He says, I know not the day and the hour, because in his humanity he did not know. He was not omnipresent. He wasn't everywhere at one time. And so we know that he set aside some of his divine prerogatives. Now we note the book, uh, this section of the book ends in verse 40 and 52, kind of like bookends here. It says that he grew in spirit, wisdom, and grace, and then in stature, favor, and favor with God and with men. He grew. If everything is preloaded and he knows everything there is to know, and he's always ever going to be in his humanity, there's nothing to grow. He's just all he ever is and all he ever will be. But he grew and he learned and he went from being an infant to being a teenager to being or a preteen to being a man the whole entire time growing in stature and wisdom before God and man. Now, John chapter 4, the gospel of John chapter 4 tells us who we learned from. We need to know who his teacher is. So go there, John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, and then we're going to jump to verse 30. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he does, these also does the Son likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. Verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Now, John is writing this during his ministry years, so he did grow and increase from birth, and on so through the entirety of his life. When he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, he begins to have hematrodosis take place, sweating blood through your pores. He was stressed about what was coming. Why? Because he was a man. He was going to feel every whip, every nail, every beating, everything that they did. And in that humanity, he looked to his father and said, if it's possible, let this come pass for me not my will, thy will be done. He's still learning. He's learning all the way to Calvary to be submissive even to the worst thing that could ever happen to a man. And if you think that watching Mel Gibson's movie on the Passion, you think that's as gross as it possibly got, you think that watching all the brutality put on him by man was was horrible, what you don't see in that movie is the fact that when it went dark upon this earth for that three hours, the Father was pouring his wrath out on the Son, that the Son would pay for all of our sins. I don't care what he suffered physically, as bad as that was, imagine the Son being caused to pay for all of our sins. It's just that it, it, it blows my little mind. But I would propose that the rabbi that nobody could see that the rabbi, whom by comparison all rabbis were at best not that great at all, 
that the rabbi for Jesus, that his instructor is, instructor is the Father himself. And he brought his star pupil to that meeting in the temple. Jesus was indeed about his father's business in the father's house, and at no time on earth did the student uh, Jesus become independent of his rabbi father. It's interesting to note as well with John chapter 5 that in the rabbinical schools of the day, um, the best, most devoted students would tend to imitate the rabbi, the master. They would pick up their inflections, their tones, their strides, their habits, and become more like them. Um, it was said that if the master kicked a stone, that all the students would kick a stone, because it seemed like that was the right thing to do. For those of you who probably don't remember who John Gerstner is, if you're into Reformed theology, you would know he's a great man. We had him at our Toledo conference uh, several times. But he was the mentor for R.C. Sproul. And if you ever get a chance to listen to John Gerstner, go online, just put the name in, listen to a message, you'll hear Sproul. The same inflections, the same tone, because he was enamored with Gerstner as his instructor, as his mentor, and he just, you do it without thinking about it. My sons don't look like me. I am so grateful for that. They look like their mother. They should be thankful for that the rest of their lives. Uh, I have a lot of hair because I don't want to scare small children and little dogs. But they look like her, but they act like me. When you see them, you think, well, they look like you, but they don't. They're just imitating me. Jesus' entire life was seen and doing whatever his father did. We cannot begin to grasp what that relationship was like. But even covertly done, um, the father-son duo there astonished everybody and Remarkably, none of the doctors pursued him after the meeting. You've just met the most remarkable student you have ever met. He has awed you to no degree. Uh, you're perplexed by his ability because there's no teacher there. Where did he come from? And yet, you don't pull him aside. You don't take him under wing. And I assume that they had perceived that they were also already in over their heads. And I think that as their pride as these doctors would simply not allow them to humble himself to feel less in his presence. And so they let him depart. In verse 50, Mary and Joseph could not understand any of this. Verse 51, though, says Mary kept all these sayings in her heart. When she didn't understand something, she just tucked it away in a safe place to be used later, and they would come out later. She observed, she contemplated, and she guarded them, even though she didn't understand them as valuable. Note also in verse 51 that this was a, a one-time act in chapter 2. Uh, Jesus, while still under his parents' care, was subject unto them. 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart from that point on. Because the father, his heavenly father, never asked him to go anyplace else while he was under their care. And so he became subject unto his parents. Subject unto them, subordinate and obedient. The father had the absolute right to, to keep Jesus in the temple, to draw him away from his parents because he's God and he has that right. But it served only one distinct purpose, so it was done one distinct time. That would simply not happen again. Eighteen years later, however, when Jesus' ministry began, Jesus the rabbi, which used 12 specific men to become his students, his disciples. 
there would be off and on about 70 students who followed Jesus around as he walked. They didn't all stay close as the 12, but they were with him. But those 12 were handpicked. And out of the 12, there would be three that would be distinctly set apart even among those 12 as those students in the temple were for special purposes. Peter, James, and John alone would be with Jesus at the raising of Jairus' daughter from Mark 5. They would be at the transfiguration in Mark 9. Much later, post-resurrection, well, they would be with him at the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. And post-resurrection, Jesus would choose the replacement for Judas himself. It wasn't uh, Matthias. The apostles were giving no authority or no commands to choose a replacement for the twelve. He went and he hanged himself. God would later choose another. He would choose this man named Saul, who would become Paul, on the road to Damascus. And he would invite him, like he invited the others, personally. The Lord went to Paul and invited him personally, commanded him, actually, there wasn't any way he was going to turn that down to follow him. Uh, you can uh, see in Galatians 1, 11 through 19, a record of what followed that encounter. But I would encourage you to read that on your own. But we know how that turned out because Paul would go on to write 13 books of the New Testament. 14, if you believe that he wrote Hebrews, which I do, from one student. Not the original 12, mind you, but from one student called out of due time on that road We have the majority of everything that we know and believe in doctrine today. And Paul would continue the teacher-student relationship with men like Timothy, Titus, Silas, Gaius, Barnabas, John Mark, Aristarchus, Epaphroditus, and, and many others. Same relationship. This is the model that we find in the temple and with Jesus and Paul. This is the biblical model we should all be following today. Not large crowds where people invite their neighbors to come so that an evangelist can speak to 70,000 people at a time and do all the work that we're supposed to be doing before anybody ever would come to that stadium. It's not bringing your friend to win a bike Sunday at the Baptist church uh, so that the pastor can do for you what you don't want to do yourself. Every single believer is instructed by the word of God to make other disciples and to train them. Every single one of us. Not just me, but every one of you. That is the biblical model, not the pastor, congregation, or even seminary student is not the biblical model. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, he says, in the literal translation, it says, as we go, he says, go you forth. As you go, teach to make disciples of all men. Look for those opportunities to tell others about Christ. The most astounding thing that's ever happened to you and will ever happen to you happened when Christ saved you. Is there a better thing that's going on someplace? Everybody says, well, you know what, I believe in miracles, but I've never seen one. And I'm telling you right now, You were all raised from the dead. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. 
You didn't have eyes to see. You didn't have ears to hear. You could hear the word of God being preached and it had none effect on you. Might as well have been talking about your Jeep going through the mud. And then God took that dead spirit and gave it life. Connected you to him. Opened up this word we're reading right now. That things you never knew, you're now beginning to know. If that's not a miracle, then I don't know what a miracle is. And if you've had that one, you're probably not in need of any others. Listen, the only master teacher for the church is the Holy Spirit. Um, let me take just a second here to tell you. I went into the hospital December 21st, my 70th birthday. And I went in because my wife you know, thought I had COVID, which I did. And then I woke up two months later. I had no, I, no memories past uh, just getting at the hospital and signing in. So you wake up two months later. I've been at the assembly now, June, this June will be 45 years. I've been the primary senior pastor there since 1978. I wake up, I haven't been in the mix for two months. It'll be a year before I take the pulpit again. Because I, I lost my fingers, I couldn't write. Uh, I had all kinds of problems I had to get over. But I woke up after two months, and guess what? The Assembly of Christians was doing just fine. Because you have this idea in your head. It's an arrogant idea. I didn't think it was, but in retrospect, what would happen if I wasn't here? Right? Because, Jesus, I do so much. And the Lord said to me, I choose to use you, but I don't need you. We're vessels for a time. And whatever time he gives us, that's a great time to have. But we have no lock on that. The assembly was doing just fine. And that I ordained, on top of that, the, the young man who took over for me, 33 years old, Andrew, a very unusual 33-year-old, more like a 50-year-old. Um, he, we ordained him in September of that same year. So he would have been under my oversight for the next year or so as a newest pastor. And instead, he got thrown in the deep end. And he did a marvelous job. We were blessed. There's only, the only master teacher of the church is the Holy Spirit. We sow, we water, but only God can give the increase. We're in his hands. And the Spirit is the source of that increase. John, Gospel John chapter 14 Verses 25 and 26, we read, He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's Father's who sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, you being yet present with me, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. That's the Master Rabbi. For the church. We all should be willing to serve our role to some degree for that master. And to continue the model we find in God's word. The model that even Jesus himself submitted to and carried on in. When Paul says, follow me, he's not actually telling you to follow him. 
He says, if you read the rest of the verse, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? Any place he strays off and any place he goes away from the word of God that's established or at that time is being established. In fact, every time you see a mention of scriptures in the New Testament, they're talking about the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. Like 60-some percent of the New Testament is either a restatement of something out, a direct restatement of something out of the Old Testament or drawn directly and put in context in the New Testament in the context of Christ. But it's the comforter, it's the spirit that teaches us that. That, that, gives, that gives life to the Old Testament by giving us the new. You can't read one without the other. Anybody that says, well, we're just a New Testament church, that's a foolish thing to say. Because you don't even understand this testament until you understand the old. How do you understand grace apart from understanding the law? How does that happen? And seeing the way the Lord brought it forth from one end to the other. So, we follow Jesus and we teach others to also follow him. That's our role. It's not to be that man but it is indeed to be, I think it's Isaiah, it is Isaiah, I can't remember which chapter, but it says, shall the, shall the axe uh, speak boldly against the one who swings it as if it swung itself? That's all we are, every one of us. All the great saints all died. We have their writings. You know, most of the reformers look back to Augustine to a great degree, and Augustine believed in baptismal regeneration. It just tells you one thing, right? He's just a man. As high as we hold him in regard, and as much as we read his stuff, just a man. Every time I take the pulpit, I ask God before I, I walk up front, give me clarity, help me to stay true to your word, and yet I know, because I've got messages I preached back in my late 20s and 30s, I would never preach today. And so I know that I'm not doing that job every time I take the pulpit. But my heart wants to. That is my desire. And so be aware, this uh, church about the size of ours in Lambertville, uh, do you know that most, the, uh, the majority of churches in America are of about 50 people? They're not the mega churches. They're Small groups, small families, just like this. I'm in favor of small families. I want to, I uh, when I bury the guy that I'm doing the funeral for, I want to know who he was. I want to know him. I don't want to be up front speaking about a guy that I don't know anything about. I want to know your kids. I want to know your kids because they're going to be future, perhaps, members of the body of Christ. I need to know who they are to even be able to help them if they need help over a long period of time. But overall, I'm just an instrument. The Lord is the one that's in charge of all the outcomes. Amen to that? All right. I just wanted to, my, my role was today was to come here and encourage you in a way that would be helpful, and especially in a small community with a small church, is don't look at yourself in that way. But look and ask every day when you get up in the morning, Lord God, who can I tell about you today? 
what opportunities might you might give me today to talk to somebody else? Might I invite them here? Not so that the preacher can do the work, but so that he just adds to what you're already doing with them. And yes, listen, if, if, if you know, if you're saved, you know the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, you better go back to square one. That's an imperative to understand the gospel, to be a Christian. You don't have to understand, you have to be able to parse all the verbs correctly, understand Greek and Hebrew, and able to do all the legwork that's required in teaching or preaching. But you're suitable and you're sufficient with the grace of God to do that role. God has made you suitable for that. He's made you that way. So use that. Let that be your focus every day to build the church of the Lord by, by sowing and watering and just leave the increase up to God. Amen? Let's have prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to be here today to just to bring your word to, to bear, hopefully in a helpful way, an encouraging way, because you can't think of anything more important or should be more important in the life of a believer but telling others about you and being as good of an example as we can be, but making sure that we're always willing and able to not just when we're asked about the hope that lies within us, but even when we're not asked, but when there are opportunities to share that hope. May that be so here. May you bless this body. May they continue. In Jesus' name, amen.